Good morning. Hey, uh, if you're a guest with us, I want to thank you for being here this morning. I'm glad you're here. Uh, would you all do me a favor, though? There's a Connect card in the seat back in front of you. Ben mentioned that. If you would take just a few moments and fill that out, I'd really appreciate it. Just let us know you were here. Prayer requests, we love having the honor and privilege of praying for you and your families. And so been able to catch up with a lot of you on those prayer requests, get updated on Sunday mornings, and it's really good to be able to do that. Uh, so take a moment and fill that out. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Philippians chapter 3. We're about 13 weeks into the series, and we're halfway through, okay? Uh, so we're, at, we're not going to go another 13 weeks, but uh, we are in chapter 3 today. We're going to be covering the first 11 verses of chapter 3. And uh, as you uh, are turning there, I want to emphasize to you quickly next week, uh, the missions wall, the missionary videos are awesome. Uh, one of my favorite preachers in the entire world is going to be here with us next week, uh, who's actually, I'm related to him, so I know there's a little bias there, but genuinely... Uh, just he's going to bring a good word for us, and I want to encourage you, if you're going on like a fall break trip, just come back Saturday. You save money. You don't have to pay for that extra night at the Airbnb. Just come back and then uh, hear from Mark. Uh, it's going to be an exciting morning, so make sure you make plans to join us uh, next Sunday morning. Let me pray for us, and we will jump in this morning. Father, thank you. Uh, honestly, this morning, God, I'm just grateful for the freedom we have to gather. I love these people. I love Sunday mornings, and I love coming together to hear from you, but God, there's a lot of distractions, and our lives are at such a pace sometimes that we can't slow down enough to pay attention. And so this morning, that's my prayer, you would calm our hearts and our minds uh, so that we can receive what you have to say to us this morning, and we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. On August the 10th, 1948, a pioneering television producer named Alan Funk debuted a hidden camera reality TV show called there it is, Candid Camera. You've been in all three services, cheater. All right. <laughs> candid Camera, okay? Uh, and the whole idea behind, the, at the time, was these cameras would reveal how people really react, kind of show you their real selves. It was a really neat study in the human psyche, this TV show. Uh, a lot of studies came out of it, watching people's response. We're so used to it today because cell phones, like you're always being filmed nonstop. Back then, they weren't. You know, people's number one fear today, and I don't know the technical term for it, but essentially it's picking your nose. Uh, people don't want to get caught picking their nose, and they always think they're being filmed. So you watch more cars have tinted windows, more people are slowing down to do what you all do. So don't even say you don't do it. Uh, you, no one wants to get filmed doing it, though. But back then, it was a really rare thing uh, to be caught on candid camera. And there was one episode in particular that I find really fascinating called Face the Rear. And it's an experiment where a man would come up to the, an elevator and he would wait for the elevator doors to open and the doors would open and he would step into the elevator and do what we all do, is you turn around and you face the door and you press the button that you want to go to. And so that's what he does and all the cameras are showing and he hits the button and they go up one floor where three actors walk into the elevator. And when they walk into the elevator, they face the rear and they just stand there. And you can see the angst on the person who doesn't know what to do. He's just kind of looking around. He knows where the door is, but he's questioning everything. There's no door on the other side, but they're just facing the rear of the elevator. So he's, he's really wondering. They go up one more floor where one more actor makes his way onto the elevator, walks on, and faces the rear. No sooner than the doors close does the person who was first on the elevator, knows where the door is, turns himself around <laughs> to face the rear where there is no door. Uh, and I find it fascinating because it's a study in how pressure causes us to conform often. That pressure was too heavy on this guy on the elevator. He just had to turn around. He couldn't stand. He knew truth. He knew where the door was. 
But for some reason, he's taking his eyes off of that, and he's just kind of focusing on things around him. And before you know it, he's turning his whole life around just because that's what everybody else was doing. And it brings to my mind a truth in Scripture that's repeated over and over again. Particularly when Paul wrote to the church at Rome in chapter 12, he said these words, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, meaning you know where the door is. You know where the door is. So stop looking at what everyone else is doing and pay attention to the truth. And instead of conforming and turning around to face the rear, pay attention and allow yourself to be transformed by the renewing of your mind instead. Now, easier said than done, right? When I begin to think about how the implications of this, it goes pretty broad. And typically, my mind in my life goes to maybe where yours does, how I apply certain Christian teachings. And so I'm going to be standing in the elevator looking at this truth, this door. I know the door's in front of me. And so instead of watching what everybody else does with their money, I need to pay attention to what God is telling me to do with my money, with my finances, or with the words that come out of my mouth, the things that I say to people, the way I interact with people, the friends that I keep closest to me. I need to pay attention because if I'm not careful, I'll watch all these other people facing the other direction. And before I know it, I'm just going to give in and turn this way. And then I'm going to be spending my money in a way that doesn't honor God. And I'm going to be worshiping at the altar of my financial security. And I'm going to be keeping friends that aren't honoring him and joking about things I shouldn't joke about. And so when I apply this to my life, it's almost always to these things. The one thing that always slips, and I don't really apply it to my life, maybe you're different, is my interaction with, not my knowledge of, but my actual interaction with God. The way in which I interact with him. I rarely apply this to him. Okay, I I don't. I just assume that. I just assume I'm good to go, but... But there are often times in my life, and maybe you're like this, where I'm facing that door, that truth, and I know that in my heart, the way my heart works, I need to spend a lot of time reading Scripture. I don't just memorize one or two verses. I need to really absorb chapters of Scripture at one time. And I know what works for me connecting with God. I understand that what works for me connecting with Him is I get in my car in the mornings when none of you could possibly hear me, no candid camera in my car, And I listen to worship music so that I can sing. And for the sake of your soul, I'm not going to do that today. But I like to sing out and worship when I'm driving sometimes. And I know for me, in my prayer life, I just need to spend time away from people. and just pouring out my heart. But if I'm not careful, what I end up doing is I start looking at the way all these other people are interacting with God. And just slowly begin to turn around and face the rear. Why? Simply because that's what everybody else is doing. No, I know the best way for me to connect. I I find myself just kind of doing what everyone else does and going through the motions. Here's why this is so important. If you don't, please hear this. If you don't hold on to the truth that the strength of your faith requires a personal connection with a living God, then what will inevitably happen, and it should not surprise us, is our faith will become nothing more than behavior modification changing our behavior, making sure we're doing all the right things. As Paul continues in this letter that we've been privileged to be studying and holding our hands, he's kind of set the stage for quite a bit. He he said in chapter 1, verse 27, uh, conduct your lives, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, that, that changed the tone of the letter there for a little bit. And he began to say, okay, from that place, what, what do I mean by conducting your life in a manner worthy of the gospel? He said, well, you have to consider others more important than yourself. Live a life of humility. Intentionally put the interests of other people above yourself. And that's going to be hard. So let me give you an example, a perfect example of Jesus. And he said, have this mind in yourself. Just do what Jesus did. Look at how Jesus did it. And after that, you've got to make sure that you're working out your own salvation with fear and with trembling and honoring him. And that's going to be hard too. So make sure you 
look up and follow some of the examples of the people that are faithful around you. And now he's going to say, hey, can I just share my heart? This is what's happening in the letter in chapter 3. He's going to pause for a second, and the tone changes yet again when you're studying this letter, and you realize, wait a second, he's just wanting to have like a heart-to-heart conversation. You ever had to have one of those? This past week in, in our house, and I'm sure this never happens in yours, but one of our kids lost their temper a little bit, um, and, uh, and, and it kind of got physical in the house, and so then I'm, I'm like having to be a part of this, and so like, okay, and so you separate everything, and there were friends over, and so in that moment, I could see the emotion on the face because they instantly knew they, they did something wrong, and it wasn't okay, and so typically what I would do normally is say, okay, you know that that was wrong. You shouldn't do that, and here's your punishment. We're going to stick to your punishment, and something was different this time, and I just thought, okay, I, I just need to pull them aside and have a heart-to-heart, and so I've, I've not always done this this well. Okay, let me just be really honest. Don't interview my kids. They don't deserve that, but but really, like, every once in a while, it's just like, boom, bring the hammer down. But this time, it was like, you can't do that. So I pulled them into the other room, and I just sat down with them, and I just said, hey, uh, let me tell you something from my heart. And that kind of got their attention in the midst of the emotion. I said, hey, your anger, this frustration, this short fuse that you've got, you got that from me. That I gave that to you. Uh, it didn't come from mom's side. <laughs> that came from, from dad. And, and I want to start out by saying I'm really sorry that that's, that, that's something I've given to you. Uh, but I, I've learned over the years a lot of lessons about that, and I want to teach you them. I said, buddy, I've lost a lot of friends, and I've hurt a lot of people when I don't control that, and I don't want that for you. And they perk up even more, and we begin to have a heart-to-heart conversation, and it changed the entire demeanor of the day. This is what Paul's doing. Paul's just saying, hey, can I just share something from my heart? I'm, I'm a little worried about you guys. That's what he's saying to the church at Philippi. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, here's how he starts in. He doesn't quite get to the heart-sharing part at first. He builds himself up for that, and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you or for your soul, is what he's saying. So pause here just for a second. He starts out, and he says, Hey, I don't have any problem repeating myself. Paul understood repetition is oftentimes the mother of wisdom. It's the source of wisdom to repeat yourself, to have to say something more than once when it's coming from a place of genuine care. This is not permission for husbands and wives to begin to say, yeah, I got permission. I can just say it over and over again. Don't do that. Paul is saying, hey, I have have this intention. And what he's saying when he says, I want to repeat myself is this. I'm going to continue to preach the gospel at you. I'm going to preach it to you. Why? He says, because when you're feeling down, I want to preach the gospel to your low spirits. When you're, when you're overly uh, confident, I want to preach the gospel to you to humble you. When you're experiencing dysfunction and frustration, I'm going to preach the gospel to that. And it's no problem for me to continue to preach the gospel to you. It's similar to that Martin Luther quote that I've shared multiple times from the stage here, where Martin Luther famously said, every day I preach the gospel to myself because every single day I forget it. That's what Paul is saying here. Every day you're going to forget and every day I want to remind you. I don't have any problem repeating myself to you. Why? Because it's going to protect your heart and your soul from legalism. Well, what do you mean legalism? Well, he kind of explains it in verses 2 and 3. He says, look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the, the, the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there's a group of people uh, in the community, in that area, that were teaching something that was really uh, kind of scary for Paul, and it began to worry him for the people that he cared about. 
And this teaching emphasized what you did. You have to do these things in order to be worthy of the grace that you are experiencing in Christ. In their day, it's a little different than in our day. We, we have legalism that looks a little different than them. In their day, they taught a group of people called the Judaizers. They would teach that anybody who was a Gentile, a Gentile was anyone who was not born Jewish, anyone who's a Gentile who wanted to become a Christian had to first become a Jew. They first had to become Jewish. And they had to go through some ceremonial things that were not pleasant. And you had to do these certain things. That's why he says, you mutilators of the flesh, you evildoers. These things were uncomfortable and wrong. And he says, that is not, you got to understand, you know the elevator door. There, is, there might be people conforming and facing the rear, and you might be tempted to turn around and participate in this false teaching. He said, but turn back around, because that door tells you that your confidence is not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That you are the circumcision. You don't need to become a Jew first. You are, the, because of what Jesus did, it's sufficient, and you know better, is what he's saying. You know that nothing you do can earn the grace that you've received. Nothing you do. But he says, if we need to put someone in their place, we can do that as well. In verse 4, he continues. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And he's saying there, he's saying, hey, if we need to compare resumes, we can do that. Let me, let me put something out in front of you is what Paul's saying. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more of a reason. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. We spent a lot of time dissecting this, and I'm going to go through it here in just a moment. But one of the things uh, that I want you to understand is that Paul is simply saying, hey, at the top of my resume, you could read in all bold, no shortcuts. I took no shortcuts. So everything I'm going to list to you is real and pure and trustworthy. My resume is at the top of the stack. I saw this picture this week online, and I thought this is exactly what Paul is saying he did not do, right? There are no shortcuts on the road to success. Like he, he says, on the road to success, I took no shortcuts. So let's break this down just for a moment. Here's what he says. He says, when he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, what he means is this. I did not convert to Judaism. I was born Jewish. So from day one, from the very beginning, I started out with this purity. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin, there were... One of two tribes, the tribe of Benjamin, one of two tribes that stayed true to the line or the house of David. So what he's saying is, I'm racially pure. I'm racially pure. Not only am I born Jewish, but I am born Jewish and racially completely pure. And that day, that was a really big deal when it came to, your, to Judaism. He's also referencing his, his birth name, which was Saul, who was the first king of Israel who came from the line of Benjamin. And he's emphasizing the importance of his background. When he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he he emphasizes this more. Many of the Jews came from a Greek background. This is why the Bible will use terms like they're Hellenized. What happened is they had Greek culture that influenced them even though they were Jewish. And Paul's saying, not me. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning the culture that I grew up around was Hebrew. So he's saying, not only am I racially pure, I'm culturally pure. I'm as close to exactly the way you need to be as anybody else. Anyone else who has a reason to brag, I have more reason. He says he's a Pharisee, saying, I have an educational background that tops everybody else's. I studied under the greatest, and I graduated at the top of my class. When he says he was faultless in his righteousness, what he means is that he kept all the rules perfectly. When it comes to living the life, he lived the life. Walking the walk, he walked the walk. Everything he did, he did it well. Everything he did, he did it better than everybody else. He didn't break the rules. He was trustworthy. You could trust him to live this perfect life. And then he says, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. What he means there is he was a leader. He had influence. 
He had influence all over the place. He was an activist, if you will, and he, he had no problem telling the entire world what he believed and why he believed it. He was never ashamed of it. Look, there was no better candidate for holiness that you could find in the world at that time than the Apostle Paul. He says, look at my background. Let's read through the resume. He took God very seriously. He took his behavior very seriously. On the outside, you could find like no fault with the guy. And now Paul shifts his attention and says, but let me share my heart with you. Those of you that are tempted, when you're in that elevator, if you will, to face the rear and trust in your own ability and confidence in your own ability and accomplishments, let me help you turn back around by sharing my heart with you. And he says in verse 7, but whatever gain that I had or accomplished in my life, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because, because of or compared to the surpassing knowledge, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What I love about this, Paul sharing his heart, is he's trying to tell them, hey, I, I want you to know, he's very intentional. It's kind of a key word. His intentionality is key. Because he doesn't say, and I want you to please hear this, he does not say, I know intellectually, friends, that I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to value Jesus more than everything else I just put on that list. I know I'm supposed to value him more than that, and so that's what I do. He doesn't say that. He says it's, it's much deeper than that. He says, I've considered this. I've actually looked at every single line, every single item on this list. He listed every accomplishment, everything that made him worthy, everything that he had done in his life, and he listed it out. And he said, I went through every single list, and I compared it to the surpassing greatness of a personal relationship with Jesus. Every single thing I'd ever done in my life. And a list in our culture might look like my financial security, my work ethic, my business accomplishments, my social standing, my parenting, my kids' accomplishments, my marriage being valuable, my home being a place everybody wants to be. You list it out. And he said, I listed everything I'd ever accomplished, everything. The Greek word translated everything is everything. There is no other interpretation of this. Everything he'd ever done in his life, he, he said, I compared it to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And he said, when I did that, these things were rubbish or garbage. I want you to know that Paul doesn't use a real light word there. In the original language, this is a word that referred to human excrement. And, and pardon me, but he is saying, compared to all of this, everything else is crap. It just is. Compared to knowing Jesus, it is garbage. Notice, though, he doesn't say the things on the list themselves are in and of themselves garbage. He says, compared to knowing Jesus, when I compare it to having a relationship with Jesus, it just does not compare at all. He says, I've had so much of my heart and so much of my passion invested in all these other things, and then something happened. These are good things, noble things, but something happened that changed everything. And he said, I didn't just learn about something. I encountered someone who changed everything. Who changed everything. He says, because of the surpassing greatness. If you're someone who highlights or underlines in your Bible, I want to encourage you that surpassing greatness is one of the most beautiful phrases in all of Scripture, and it communicates something incredible. Let me illustrate it for you this way before we jump into the details of it. 
I'm, a, I'm what you would call a city boy, okay? I, I grew up in a city, um, and so I didn't have a lot of time out in the country and, and appreciate certain things. And my kids, we live in, my wife grew up in Brownsburg, so she didn't get to experience this thing I'm going to tell you about either. And so our kids haven't because we live in Brownsburg. But every once in a while, we get out to someone's house who lives a little bit further away. Someone who lives out in the country. When it gets dark outside, one of the things that just amazes both my kids and myself and my wife are the stars in the sky. It just blows me away because you just don't get to see them all the time. Where, when I grew up and where I live now, there's just light pollution, and, and so you just, you just can't see them. It's just this beautiful thing. You're just blown away by how many stars. Like, I knew, I knew how many stars were in the sky, but seeing it just blows my mind. But here's the thing that gets me more than anything else. When the morning comes, and the sun comes out, the surpassing greatness of the sun is so bright that you can't see those bright stars anymore. They didn't go anywhere. They didn't get dimmed. It's just something came along that was far more brilliant, far more powerful, far brighter than them. And it, it was a surpassing greatness that outdid all of the stars. And Paul is saying, all the things in my life that were stars, all of these things, my accomplishments that were stars in my life, and my finances, my influence, my power, these things that shine so bright in my eyes is what Paul is saying. And then something came out, something, something arrived that was just so brilliant and powerful in my life that these things began to lose their brightness. And they no longer controlled me. When he says surpassing greatness, it's actually a Greek word, hyperecho. And what that word literally means is super thing. Paul is saying, I found the super thing. I found this super thing that that has driven me now, that drives me, that gives me my ambition and my confidence. This super thing, I, I used to have all these other things that drove me, all these other things I was chasing, and, and fill in the blank with whatever the stars in your life would have been. And Paul says, but I found this super thing that's brighter than all of the stars in the sky. And these other things, they no longer drive me like they used to. They're not bad things. And they're beautiful. Look, stars are beautiful. And they should be appreciated. And there's many of them in our lives, but there's only one sun. There's only one. Shines brighter than all the stars. Here's the thing. Our accomplishments and our dreams, they speak very loudly in our lives, don't they? They speak very loudly in our lives. They're stars that shine bright. Our bank accounts. You hear preachers say this stuff all the time, but can we just get real just for a minute? Let this be more than just a talk that you're listening to? Just for a minute. Think about these things that we talk about, like these stars that are shining bright in, in, in the sky of your life, in, in your heart, these things that really do captivate us. How about our financial security? Making sure that our retirement's going to be comfortable. How about our own personal happiness and the things that we want, our own comfort? How about that? How about our parenting? Making sure that we're the best and most noticed parents. How about our marriages? Making sure that our marriage is the one that everybody else can look to because we do it better than everybody else. How about, how about that? How about, how about living vicariously through our children and their accomplishments and, and putting so much pressure on them to achieve things? Look, there's a million stars in the sky. A million stars in the sky, but there's only one sun. And the question that this text is begging us to ask is this. Do you know him? I mean, do you really, really know him? Is he really outshining all of the other stars in your life? And I love Paul because he's brilliant. He's a scholar. And he, and he says, 
the, the big thing, this super thing, this, this sun that outshone all the stars, didn't just outshine all of the, the stars that were accomplishments, but they also outshone all of the stars that were the pain in my life, the tragedy, the frustration and difficulty of my life. It's outshone all of that because Paul says, I have lost a lot. I've lost so much in my life, but it pales in comparison. The losses pale in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. It's not just the accomplishments. I mean, think about what this guy would have had to lose. In order to follow Jesus, after having a life of all the accomplishments that he listed, he would have had to be willing to give up his friends, friendships. Think about how close your friendships are to you and how much they mean to you. He would have been abandoned by his friends, by family members, by intellectual peers. His social standing would have been humiliated. He probably would have lost his home, his security, his status, job opportunities, everything else. He goes into a little bit of detail when he writes to the church at Corinth, and I'm not going to put this on the screen. I just want you to hear what I say. Listen to what Paul lists out as his list of not accomplishments, but his pains and his suffering in life. He says this, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and oftentimes near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst without food, in cold and being exposed. And apart from all of these things, I had the daily pressure of the anxiety I feel for the church. Look, it's one thing to list off all of our accomplishments and our dreams and to say Jesus is better. It's a whole other thing when we go through a list of our pain and our suffering and our tragedy and our difficulty and we say he's still better than that too. He shines better than that in my heart just as much as he shines brighter than my accomplishments in my heart. And when he says that I compare the list of suffering to knowing Christ, they lose their brightness because Jesus is worth it. He's just worth it. So again, I think the text begs us to ask of ourselves, is your relationship with Jesus, honestly, honestly, think about this. Is it shining brighter than everything else in your life, whether good or bad, whether an accomplishment or a difficulty? Is the surpassing greatness of knowing him, of having a personal relationship with Jesus, shining brighter than everything else in your life? Or are you simply turning around in that elevator, facing the rear because that's what everybody else is doing too? It's a very difficult question. And so let me ask this. I'm going to have a heart-to-heart with you. As a pastor, I am worried for our culture. I'm very worried. We have a lot of Christian activity around us when we live in the city that we live in, Indianapolis. It's like the church capital of America. There's a church on every corner. We have all kinds of activities. You can get your kids anything that you could possibly want from playgrounds to activities to programs. And you got any kind of an incredible communicator all throughout this city, all kinds of communicators that'll tell you everything you want. They'll be just the style you want, all the kinds of different music, people putting on production. You can do whatever you want. And we are filling ourselves with all kinds of activities. And the pressure put on pastors, the pressure put on churches to continue to make everybody happy, to put on programs and to, to push the envelope and to do all these different things. And I, I just think, man, can we just peel it back and just help people understand how to know God? 
can we, can we make it that simple? Oh, well, people might not show up. You got to really, no, is he not enough? Could it be that we just need to know him? Parents, let me tell you, this is so vitally important for you to be stressing in your homes. Like, do you know him? Not just do we behave the right way, say the right things, and act the right way. Do we look good as a family, and are we acting like Christians? But do you really know Jesus? But here's the thing, you can't lead them where you're not going. They'll read right through it. You can't lead them where you're not going yourselves. There are signs of maturity and growth in a life, and there are signs of decay and ultimately death in a life as well. And here's the thing, changing your behavior is a tricky one. Changing your behavior can make, make you really believe that you're doing things the right way only to find out that it wasn't real and you didn't really know him. Remember what Jesus said when confronted, Lord, we did all these things for you. We worked miracles for you. We taught people. We visited people. And he said, I know you did all those things, but I didn't know you. I never knew you. So I want to close this out with just an analogy here. It's been fresh on my mind because I've been, it's like wedding season. So I'm like doing a lot of rehearsals and weddings and I'm loving it, premarital counseling. Honestly, I'm really enjoying the season. But it's put this analogy in my mind oftentimes. And I know it's a sensitive one. Some people are like, no, I don't want to talk about a marriage analogy. And I get it, I understand that. But here, the Bible uses marriage as an analogy over and over and over again. So it's really a perfect picture for what we're talking about. Because your relationship with God is a lot like a healthy marriage. See, when I married my wife 13 and a half years ago, we got married actually right here in this spot. We stood here, and I was ready to wet my pants in front of her dad. And uh, all of you that I didn't know at the time, but I know you now, okay? Uh, people all the time, hey, we were at your wedding. Hey, I don't remember that because uh, I didn't know any of you. Uh, but, but we got married, and I, I thought like I was ready, and I, I still think I knew a lot about Sarah then. We had thoroughly thought through it. We kind of counted the cost. We knew what was going to change when we got married. We understood that. But ask anyone who's been married longer than 11 seconds, and they'll tell you. They'll tell you that what they thought they knew on that wedding day, I mean, they had no idea. 13 years later, I know her in all kinds of, it's just a beautiful thing. I get to learn more about her and, and how she's growing and maturing in Christ. I, I get to see that and to learn that and to get to know her, and it's an incredible thing. And in marriage, you ask, I was at a wedding reception last night, just a little over 12 hours ago. I'm standing there after being a part of this wedding, and I happen to be standing next to, to Bob Lamb, a charter member of our church here. And, and I lean in, and I just said, hey, Bob, how long have you been married? And right on the spot. So here's your brownie points, Bob. Uh, he said, uh, 60 years. I just thought, wow. As we talked, he was communicating to me in his way. He was saying, like, I'm still learning. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm like, you're 60 years in. I'm 13 years in. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, I'm still learning. It's a beautiful thing. But it doesn't always work out that way, does it? See, when I'm in a marriage, when someone decides they're done learning, that they know everything they need to know about the other person, when they start making assumptions, there's no longer any growth or any maturity or any learning of the other person. And there was no other expectation that they're learning and growing, that they're learning and growing together. What happens is decay begins to set in, and if not taken care of, unfortunately, too often in the church, those marriages die. And see, in the same way, when you got baptized into Christ, that day you knew things were going to change. You count the cost. I remember vividly standing uh, in a swimming pool in, in South Florida thinking to myself, everything's going to be different now. I knew that, but ask anyone who's been following the Lord for any amount of time, and they'll tell you what they thought they knew. What they thought they knew when they gave their life to Christ, when they became a Christian, what they thought they knew was only the tip of the iceberg. And I can tell you, 
After 17 and a half, 18 years of following Jesus, he's taken me on an adventure I never could have dreamed of. I'm learning more and more about him each and every day, and that, that, that knowledge is becoming sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. But he, here's the thing. We're following Jesus, and we get to this place where we think we know it all. Well, I've heard Bible stories my whole life. I don't really have much else to learn. We begin to treat him like, like just another person. Like, I, I, I followed him. I know how to behave. I know all the right things. I'm, I'm doing this the way I know I need to do it. What happens is decay begins to set in. And if left unchecked, it ultimately leads to many people far too often walking away. Walking away from the Lord. And I think the key to this is how we interact with Jesus. See, many of us, we're, we're in that elevator. We know how to interact with him, but we watch what other people are doing, and before we know it, we're just trying to do what they do because that's what everybody's doing, and we're not actually connecting with him. We're not actually connecting in a real way with him. Why? Because we treat Jesus like any other historical figure. We just treat him like Abraham Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt. Like, I love studying their life. I love learning how they interacted with people. I love reading stories about it, and I love even applying some of their teaching, and I can quote them all the time. I love it. But here's the thing. They're dead. They're dead. For far too many of us, we treat Jesus the same way. He's just a historical figure. He's dead now. He lived a long time ago. And Paul's saying, no, he's not. Oh, he's alive. He's alive. And I want to know him. I just want to follow him. When I compare that relationship, knowing him, to anything else in life, oh, man, it's garbage garbage they're great things but there's nothing better than a god who lived and died and resurrected who wants to know me so i ask you one last time do you really know him do you know him and is that relationship shining brighter than any other star in the sky of your life like a healthy marriage the longer you walk with him the sweeter it gets and the brighter he'll shine let's pray